You're listening to the Enhance Your Practice podcast series, brought to you by ASPS University. I'm ASPS University Chair, Dr. Nicholas Panetta, and I invite you to check out all of our educational offerings, from professional surgical videos, courses on practice management, and much, much more at ASPS EdNet. Hello, listener. Welcome to the ASPS University podcast, Enhance Your Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Ash Patel. This episode is entitled Cybersecurity in Your Private Practice, and we're very lucky today to be joined by Dr. Jim Nakbar. Dr. Nakbar has been in practice for 30 years in Scottsdale, Arizona. Interestingly, as well as being an accomplished plastic surgeon, he's also a licensed attorney, and he's also the developer of Intellipract, which we'll learn more about today. Uh, welcome, Jim. Thanks for joining us today and taking time out of your busy practice and, and busy schedule. Thanks, Ash. So, um, first of all, Jim, um, can you can you tell us how you you got interested in um, information security and and what cybersecurity really means? Sure. Well, I guess uh, it goes way back to 1969 when I was 13 years old, and our school got this uh, computer with a 8K of uh, uh, 4K actually of uh, 12-bit bytes, and had a chance to learn how to program it. Nobody else knew how to do it, so and just had a manual. I went through it, that, learned the machine language. Uh, on the weekend, I would leave the window unlocked so I could sneak in there. Uh, so I think it's a lot easier to learn it when you're younger. But I've been interested in sort of solving difficult problems related to computers ever since then, and so. Cybersecurity is clearly just one of them. It's just a uh, complex way of understanding how things go together, but it all fits. And it's very cool to be able to understand how the pieces fit together. For our listeners, they're probably very aware that that we use a lot of electronic devices, whether it's our smartphones, tablets. Uh, Most of our practices have multiple computers there. And of course, they're all connected to networks. So, so tell me about why that could be a particular hazard for, for any of our listeners. Well, it's a hazard in a couple of different ways. It makes the basically the ways that uh, people want to attack and the reason they attack is to either get money from you by perhaps uh, depriving you of the information you have or else also to get copies of the information themselves so that they can uh, threaten to disclose it and get money in that way. Um, those are the main reasons. Obviously, sometimes you have employees who are disgruntled or whatever and want to har- uh, harm you. But most of the time, it's people who are trying to get money by either, uh, again, preventing you from using your own information or or stealing information so they can threaten to disclose it. Where does someone begin safeguarding the, the digital patient information uh, so that we can keep our patients uh, really safe? I would recommend that the most important thing is to begin with understanding the risks. In other words, understanding sort of where the vulnerabilities are, what sort of things you can lose, you know, how people would typically get in to try to uh, you know, do those things and get into your systems and so forth. Probably the best place to start with that is the HIPAA security rule. And the rule itself, a lot of times people have heard all sorts of things about it or how complicated it is. It's really very simple and it's all in seven pages. And I'm just going to give the reference if people want to look it up. It's 45 uh, CFR, so it's the 45th volume of the Code of Federal Regulation, Section 164.302 to 164.318. And literally seven pages, it goes over in detail really each of the individual things that you should be looking for. It doesn't give you the answer. It doesn't tell you what to do about them, but it does give you an idea of what to look for and what sort of things you should do in order to uh, make your system secure. The, the most important thing is to begin with understanding the risks. And again, I recommend the HIPAA security standard is the best way to start with that. 
So staying on the topic of, of HIPAA, every, uh, an individual practice and, and uh, practitioner are essentially called a HIPAA covered entity. And as a practice, if it was a solo, if I was in a solo private practice, uh, it's, it's mandatory to have a, a security review in relation to HIPAA. So can you explain to us in brief what kind of risks are assessed and what someone would do with that information? Sure. But first, I would step back and look at the question of being covered provider, because not every physician is a covered provider. Uh, and in fact, if you're a cosmetic surgeon and not billing insurance, you're almost certainly not a covered provider. Even if you do bill insurance, you're not a covered provider unless you bill electronically or engage in one of uh, uh, nine other transactions that have identified that be electronic uh, transactions in terms of like checking eligibility and so forth. So if you want to know for sure whether or not you're a covered provider, the best way is Google are you a covered entity? And what will happen is you'll go to the uh, uh, the government website that talks about HIPAA, and they have a specific tool that helps people understand whether or not they're a covered entity. So if you're not a covered entity, you don't have to follow the HIPAA rules, but there will still be state privacy laws and so forth you have to follow. And I would still recommend going through the security review, even if you don't have to, because you're not a covered entity, because again, it's a nice standard way of looking at everything. And as you go through and read those uh, seven pages, you'll be able to see some of the things, some of the things I talk about are administrative safeguards, you know, making the systems, uh, you know, in a locked room, for instance, or not letting people wander through. Uh, they talk about uh, different ways of managing passwords, keeping separate accounts for individuals so people aren't sharing the same account. There's a whole range of things. They do talk a little bit about encryption, but what they don't really do is tell you what, you know, what technologies to use. So the, the rule actually is to have a system for encryption, but it doesn't say what exactly has to be encrypted. And the whole system is designed so that it's very flexible based on the um, the needs of the individual uh, practice. So for instance, a giant hospital is going to have different resources and uh, different uh, ways they can approach problems than a single doctor practice would. And so the standard understands that. And again, what the standard requires is not that you do anything in particular, but that you have gone through this uh, long list of individual things to look at and think about and decided what you're going to do about each one of them. Some of them are called required and you have to do sort of what they say. Other ones that are listed as addressable are not optional, but they're something that you, you should look at and may or may not be able to do exactly what they recommend, or there might be some other ways around that. So that's basically the, what's involved in the security in a HIPAA um, security review. So if I, if I understood you correctly as well, that, that it's important to bear in mind not just the uh, federal regulations, the, the HIPAA, HIPAA regulations that might apply to you, but also to be sure that you also check your, your state as in your local regulations, make sure there's no other uh, legislation that, that, that applies to you. Yeah, almost certainly there will be other uh, legislation. You know, federal law, if, if it conflicts with the state law, the federal law will apply. It will preempt the state law. But uh, it's almost guaranteed that everybody's going to be covered by uh, state laws as well as federal laws. Most of those state laws were in place before. Sometimes the state laws have very specific requirements. And so it definitely is important to know what your local laws are. Yeah, most practices will bring in a consultant or a vendor to to help set up their uh, information technology uh, within the within the practice. Um, what sort of questions should the plastic surgeon be asking in, in terms of setting that stuff up? 
So I think it depends a lot on how they view what security should be in the practice. And actually, uh, I've given a talk at Hot Topics a couple of times at PSTM over the years, and I had questions about uh, the details. So I went ahead and uh, put up a website called officenetworksecurity.com that describes the things we really to be looking for and also has some details that you might not want to know all about yourself, but you can show to a consultant. But the basic issue that consultants typically do, you know, they have sort of a, a standard system for putting it together. Together, you know, they, they do what's called a firewall, which is basically some sort of router or computer between your office network and the internet. And those are pretty easy to set up so that traffic cannot come in from the internet uh, unless it's requested from within the practice. But the problem is that it's not that hard to get your staff to request information from the internet, which might not be safe information. So probably the single most common breach occurs by email attachments or phishing sent to the practice, uh, get the practice to click on a link, maybe go to a website, enter information, uh, maybe even their username and password and so forth, uh, thinking that it's one site and it turns out to be a different site. And and mo almost every network that in office I've seen will not prevent that. It's not that hard to prevent, but it's just not something that the consultants typically understand. I would recommend going definitely to that website, officenetworksecurity.com, to look at it. But the whole concept is you want them to be blocking traffic out from your office rather than just traffic going into your office. And so obviously you do need to have some communication there. So the two areas are, are email attachments, I think, and browsing that cause most of the problem. So the solution I have for that is for email attachments, I use a modified basically web uh, email program that is designed so that it will not download attachments. So they can see emails, but they can't download attachments. So they can't uh, cause a problem with that. And then for the browsing part of it, you know, they probably need access to some websites, but the problem is you don't want them to access any website. In particular, for instance, if there's a bad link in an email that takes you to a malicious website, uh, you want your systems to prevent them from going there. And the best way to do that is to set up what's called a proxy server uh, at the firewall so that when your individual computers make a request to the internet, it goes to that proxy server in your office. The proxy server checks the uh, address against a list of valid websites that you've approved. And if it matches one of those, it lets the message go through. Uh, if it does not, it prevents them from accessing the website. So, But I've seen very, very few consultants who will do that unless you basically force them to. So you bring up the point of the potential for, for human error as part of uh, cybersecurity that your, your staff or even yourself as a plastic surgeon can get tricked into clicking links or downloading attachments. What do you think are the key points there that uh, the listeners need to, to learn about and to, to try and teach their staff about what they should or shouldn't do? Well, I think that, you know, social engineering, as it's called, is one of the greatest risks. And what happens is, you know, as plastic surgeons, we want staff that are very friendly and helpful and so forth. And we're basically hiring the people that are the easiest targets for social engineering. You know, they, a couple different ways someone could uh, send an email or make a request or call on the phone or even show up in the office, you know, asking for something to get information. And the staff is, you know, trained in their personalities or such to be helpful. And a lot of times they'll, they'll give it out. And the attacks and so forth do become sophisticated and it's hard for people to know all of them. So it's hard to sort of manually uh, recognize those. Uh, many consultants will talk about doing, you know, education of your staff. And I think that's very important for them to understand, but I don't think it's realistic to expect that they're going to be able to uh, not ever click on a link or not ever go to a website that they're not supposed to. And so I don't think you can rely on the education. I think you have to also have technical safeguards in place 
to make it less likely that those things will happen. You know, as an employee of a, of a health system, every employee in our organization has to do this cybersecurity uh, training every year along with a kind of a HIPAA education module. Do you think those things have any role to play in, in educating the staff? I, I do think those things are very, very helpful. I'm, I'm not trying to minimize the importance of education. I think it's really critical. I think that oftentimes issues can be seen. And there's a lot of things, for instance, there's really no way to make a technical safeguard against getting an email that looks like it's from your boss, you know, saying to wire $100,000 to this bank account because it's something important. And that's a very, very common social engineering hack these days. So Education, I think, is critical. Also, big organizations have a lot of other resources, and they can do things like sending test phishing emails, emails that are that basically are similar to what a phishing email would would be with a link, and then see if the employees click on it or if they report it. You know, they're supposed to report something like that. And so, if they they report it, they get a attaboy, and if they uh, click on the link, they get a uh, sort of a reminder that you shouldn't be doing that. And that sort of thing, I think, is also very very helpful. But I think it's hard to produce that, you know, in a private practice doctor's practice. But if there's education available, if, you, if there's education uh, available, definitely take advantage of it. I'm, I definitely think it's very valuable, and I think it's definitely your first line of defense. So given your, your extensive experience uh, with cybersecurity, especially over the last several years, have you seen any, any changes to the types of threats or the ways in which people are trying to gain access to, to information in a plastic surgery practice? Well, yes and no. Certainly the basic concepts are, are pretty similar, but obviously things have changed. You know, the dramatic, dramatic increase in the availability of the internet and uh, over the past, you know, 10 years, 15 years is just changed things very, very dramatically. But also now, for instance, most websites are going to be HTTPS, which makes it basically impossible for someone who's watching the traffic to, you know, see what the information is. So that's sort of new. So that changes it. And like I say, with the you know, the the prevalence of routers on everybody's system, whether at home or everywhere, you know, the block incoming traffic, there's less of traffic, I think, trying to break in from the outside, although it's certainly there because there's so many more computers out there. There's a lot of that. But I think the big thing is, again, uh, social engineering and uh, getting people to uh, to click on things or try to access things from within the office itself. But yeah, the, there's no question that the threats are evolving and changing over time. And so what you know today might not be adequate. But the overall concepts are still the same. If you can uh, set up uh, you know, appropriate technical safeguards, those are going to work pretty much regardless. Do you think there are any particular considerations uh, we need to take, whether it's with laptops or tablets or even uh, mobile devices? Sure. Well, I think one thing is to make sure that you're always using uh, encrypted communication. And one, one of the big vulnerabilities is with uh, email clients. In other words, if you have an email um, system, uh, and this is a little different than like the webmail, but if you have an email system like uh, uh, mail on your uh, Apple computer, it connects to uh, remote computers both to send out email and also to receive email. And again, the email when it's received is typically not received on your computer. It's received on one that's on the, the network all the time. Uh, and then your computer accesses it. Uh, and so when your email client is connecting to those, you can set them up to connect via an encrypted or an unencrypted port. And in the past, uh, it's usually been an unencrypted port that uh, was used, like port 25 for sending emails. So you want to make sure that you're connected through the encrypted port uh, using any of your email clients. Now, you mentioned uh, the website that you had set up earlier. And for the listeners again, could you just tell us what the URL was? So the URL is officenetworksecurity.com. So 
very very simple and uh it, it basically it, it's it had a copy of my presentation from i gave a talk at the uh, pstm in san diego in uh 2019 on network security so it has a copy of that talk it has uh, a number of different pages with some detailed diagrams as for how to set it up to make it uh, more secure and yet usable you know the basic issue with um security is that it's inconvenient you know the most convenient is to have everything open and easy to use um you know the most secure is to put everything in a locked closet and not have it connected to anything. And neither of those really is a good solution. So it's really a balance. And perhaps the most important thing is as you look at all these individual risks, is to balance, you know, the convenience of doing it one way versus the risk. So, for instance, a great example is a lot of web, uh, web browsers like Chrome will let you store passwords for websites, uh, and you go there and you go to, to to go back to the website, and the password's automatically there, and you can click connect. And so, I get the question a lot of times: Is that a safe thing to do? And the answer is, like everything, it depends. It depends on what you're accessing. It depends on how bad it is. So, for instance, if you're uh, accessing the uh, payroll system you use to pay your staff and employees, which is a system that connects to your bank and can send checks out to anybody, you know, that's a price security one. You probably don't want to use that kind of uh, uh, system to store the passwords. Whereas if you're using a website, even for something like accessing uh, lab results or something like that, where it's less critical, I mean, presumably they're not going to be able to get to your computer, but it's not quite the same risk that some of the other ones might have. Someone else might might decide that that clinical system is more critical and they, they don't want to put the password in. Um, the problem, of course, is if you don't have the password in something like that, then you have to have it someplace else. Uh, and password management is one of the most difficult things people have problems with and one of the areas where I think that people have the most ability to make improvement. And you do need to have a practical system. So the practical system I use is a password manager. It lets me easily set up different passwords for every single website, which is critically important, and then uh, keeps them all in, a, in an encrypted file on my computer. So I just need to remember, remember one single password, which is fairly complex to access that system. And then from there, I can get the passwords for everything else. Um, and so they need to have practical systems to be able to make it work. And that's probably the most important thing in terms of balancing your risks and the benefits of different interventions. So tell us about IntelliPract and how that uh, can help maintaining cybersecurity. So IntelliPract is a, uh, a practice management system. It's the offshoot of the Inform system that's been developed by the Olisons, uh, and it's gone through some different uh, uh, layers. It now is basically a full practice management. It does um, electronic charts, paperless charting, but it's designed to make it easy. So for instance, it's not the, the kind that you would have for a practice that's trying to get money from the government for having uh, meaningful use, but it's designed to make it very, very easy. And so that connects to uh, mostly with inside the office network. So by keeping all that information inside the office, it's more secure. And and again, someone would be hard for somebody to get into it from the outside. We also do have a, a patient portal um, you can access the portal from uh, elsewhere. I have it designed uh, for, for instance, for uh, security and passwords. One of the big problems you have is that staff often will pick an easy password. They'll pick the same password different places. So you need to have a system that doesn't depend on their doing passwords correctly to be secure. So our portal can be set up for practice so that when the staff is accessing it from inside the office and the IP address of the uh, office itself, it can get in with just a username and password. But if they're accessing it from home or from someplace else, they have to uh, do a two-factor authentication where they get a code on their phone to be able to 
access the uh, the system. So that makes it more secure from the outside, but makes it more convenient on the inside, which I think is helpful. Another uh, thing I put in there that I haven't seen anywhere else is the issue of credit card refunds. There's a doctor in my community who had a huge amount of money stolen by a staff person because they basically did credit card refunds to their own or their friend's uh, credit cards. And it wasn't until the bank told them that he was getting a lot of refunds before he f- even figured it out. So my system, I set it up so that when it does a credit card refund before it will process it, it sends a code to the doctor and the doctor has to review that, say that it's okay, and then give the code to the staff person to be able to process the refund. So there definitely are interventions, but again, most most systems most uh, are, are just not considering security as the most important issue. And so it really needs to be a matter of the focus of the individual uh, designing it and the terms of what the practice demands. When we talk about EMRs, there's been a lot of talk about having the EMR as a cloud-based solution for a variety of reasons. But from the security perspective, can you tell us about the pros and cons of, of having having your EMR cloud-based? Well, I think that's a terrific question. It's completely different. In other words, with uh, Amazon Web Services and so forth, there's a huge amount of uh, very, very easy to set up very complex and, and terrific systems in the cloud, uh, but it does change the risk significantly. So for instance, if you have a practice management EMR system in your office, uh, if someone wants to break into that, you know, they might they probably need to break into your office physically, get into your office, get to your computer system and, and take it that way. If your system's in the cloud, then literally any place in the world can access that and all they need is the password. So here is how that works. So your staff uses the same password for all different sites. You know, they get an email. Do you want this free gift? Just create this account. You know, they put their username and password in to create an account, which, by the way, is the same as the one that they use for your EMR system. The attacker who sent that email, you know, now knows is the username and password, and then they go to the EMR system and they can get right in. They have access to everything and they can do that from Romania or from Russia or any place in the world. So that's a, it's a completely different sort of risk. So you do need a way to lock down, uh, and I recommend locking it down by either IP addresses or two-factor authentication. The problem with two-factor authentication is only that it's inconvenient and so uh, it's sometimes hard to get the staff to go along with it, but I think you need to insist. You know, the other thing I see is people uh, are using services where there are virtual PCs in the cloud that access their systems, and somehow they think that that's more secure. And it is more secure in the sense that the, probably those systems are very well backed up. In other words, it's not likely that if you get a ransomware attack and you know they encrypt everything, it's likely that the uh, service you're using will have good backups of your system. You know, The problem is that it depends totally on what your staff is doing. If your staff can receive email attachments on that cloud server or, um, or virtual PC, you know, or they can browse the web from that, then all exactly the same risks in your office uh, as remotely, except that worse in the sense that they don't think that someone doesn't actually have to get into your office to be able to access those. So it's definitely different. And it's, and I think it's a huge mistake to believe that software as a service or using virtual PCs in the cloud uh, is a panacea. You know, it just changes the risk and in some way makes them greater. Uh, Jim, I think you've given us a lot of great information to think about. You've got me worried about about security of all of my computers as well. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, thanks for all this great information. Uh, uh, Do you have any other last uh, take home points or anything that you wanted to add to what we've discussed today? I guess I would just reiterate the most important thing is to begin with understanding the risks. You know, you're not going to be able to probably become a, a 
network expert yourself, although I think it's fun and I really enjoy it. And I'm sure that every plastic surgeon in our society has the capability if they wanted to, but they probably don't have the interest. But there are some things you can understand about the risks and uh, make sure that your consultants understand the need to avoid or prevent your staff from accessing the web from inside your office. If you can do that one thing, that's probably important. And, and I guess maybe one more t- thing would be password uh, management. Thanks again for your, all of your great advice. Uh, I think for the listeners, uh, once again, your, your website, officenetworksecurity.com. Yes. Uh, sounds like a really great resource. And um, obviously, I think, um, as you, as you mentioned, um, you've, you've given similar talks uh, in more depth at PSTM. And uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll get a chance to hear uh, some more of those uh, talks in depth uh, at future meetings. Um, th- thanks again for uh, taking some time from your from your busy schedule uh, today and, and for being a great guest. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Join us on the next episode of Enhance Your Practice, where we'll be talking with Dr. Andrew Rosenthal and Lindsay Pine from Modernizing Medicine about how to create an efficient and effective patient flow. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our Enhance Your Practice podcast series, brought to you by ASPS University and our host, Dr. Ash Patel. You can listen to our other episodes on any of the podcast platforms where they are currently available, or you can download recordings directly from ASPS Ednet. New seasons and episodes are coming soon on practice management. Please contact ASPS Education with your feedback and suggestions for future podcast topics. Thank you for tuning in.